Welcome to the Pemberley Podcast, where we discuss Jane Austen and other historical romance adaptations. I'm Jillian. I'm Yolanda. Let's dive in with a quote from Shonda Rhimes' book, The Year of Yes, How to Dance It Out, Stand in the Sun, and Be Your Own Person. Losing yourself does not happen all at once. Losing yourself happens one no at a time. It's powerful stuff. This week, we're discussing Queen Charlotte, Episode 2. We'll talk about Charlotte bursting in on the king and demanding answers for his absence from her bed, learn more about Lady Danbury and her journey to power, and see the queen handling the succession crisis. We'll also learn the history of royal wedding nights and how the Pomeranian became so beloved to the royal family. So previously on episode one of Queen Charlotte, the new young queen has been married off to the King of England after accidentally meeting him in an attempt to escape. She has learned they are to live in separate homes and under the orchestration of Dowager Princess Augusta, the great experiment has officially begun. So the first event of the episode is what I like to think of as you prefer the sky to me, which is a Mm. a quote that we're going to talk about soon. We open on birds chirping. It's very early in the morning. And if you are anything like me, you watch all of your movies with closed caption subtitles. And if you watch the 2005 Pride and Prejudice and the 2020 Emma, both of these movies open we are hours of the morning with birds chirping and our heroines getting up. So this is, I like to think, very much rooted in Austin-verse cinema. <laughs> the poor young queen is alone in her new house with nothing on her schedule for the week because it's her honeymoon. And I think a honeymoon without your honey must really suck because she just changes into three different outfits a day for an elaborate table set for one. I can't imagine having to change three times a day. And like the costumes are all very elaborate too. I mean, these are these are not easy outfits to get in and out of. So of course she has like a whole team to undress her, dress her and do her hair and to go nowhere. I mean, it is literally you're getting dressed for tea or you're getting dressed for lunch and you are just in a room alone, surrounded by your staff who are all just waiting for you to say anything. <laughs> Yeah, it's like she's only getting dressed by and for her staff. Those are the only people that she's seeing. And it's really hard because these people aren't her friends. Like, Brimsley's not her friend. He's kind of like her own personal human computer person, like (laughs) Janet in The Good Place. Like, he's there to supply her with whatever she needs, whatever info, whatever anything. But she's lonely. It's just so sad because she is so young and she just got here and she was like kind of starting to have a crush on her husband. And then he was like, no, I'm just, I'm going to be over here and yeah. you're going to be here. So you have fun. You do that. I mean, she reaches a real breaking point because then she's like, okay, I'm going to go see my husband. And they're like, is she, can, we can't stop her, <laughs> but we also know that she is not like the king doesn't want to see her. There's no way that they can say, no, queen, you cannot go see your husband. So she's able to go in a carriage and go find him at his observatory where he's just there. He's just there like with his telescope and looking at the stars and just like doing his thing. And it is very much a moment where she's like, this, this is what you've been doing instead of like being with me or talking to me or anything with me. I love this scene because I think we get our very first... I like to think of them as Shonda speeches, and Mm. you can see them throughout all of her shows where the heroines of her shows sort of rise up 
gather their power and say (laughs) what's really on their mind in a very like succinct and articulate way. And she says it so beautifully because he's like, what are you doing here? Like like, he kind of doesn't understand why she's there. He's like, I said I'm here and you're supposed to be over there. I cannot do whatever I like. The queen is not allowed to go to the Modiste or the galleries or the ice shops. I cannot make friends. I must hold myself apart. I do not know a single soul here except for you. On the honeymoon, it's like she is not forbidden, but it's like they're not supposed to be out in public yet. They're not supposed to engage with any events. It is until they finish that honeymoon period, then she can go out. But even then, so much is still restricted to what is approved or what is appropriate for her to go to. I think she was sort of hoping that there was something he found wrong with her. Right. That she could perhaps address or confront or like, oh, he was out with other women and that's why he wasn't with me. But like, it's kind of insulting to her that this is where she says, you prefer the sky to me because he's just sitting alone and he's, he's left her to be by himself. Yeah. And that's really, I can see how that would be really insulting. (laughs) He's chosen his life as like, he's fine with being apart from everyone and society and just forever just being in his observatory. And she's like, well, I just got here. I just want to do all the fun things that I thought I was going to get to do of leaving her her town and, and being now queen. But she's come into this world where, yeah, she is also expected to be a part. And she's like, that's not the, what I thought I was signing up for. She's not like, that not that she signed up. She didn't. <laughs> no, her brother signed her up yes. for her. But she's just kind of like, that's not, you know, I, I think it's really brave of her to say that's not the life I want to live. Yeah. I want, she wants a relationship with her husband and she wants company and she wants friends and she like she's a teenager like why wouldn't she want these things or just as a person so this is where she's also her other great line is fight with me fight for me because he's very non-confrontational right now he's like i still like he's still kind of pretending to know not to know like what her problem is yeah and she's like i want to have this fight because this fight is like even if it's the only part of a relationship that she has with him It's better than just sitting in that house and doing nothing. The only person she could have a conversation with about having a relationship with him is him. Brimsley and Reynolds, we learn, are also, I don't know if they're in love, but they're hooking up with each other. Like, while the king and queen are having this argument in the observatory, Reynolds and Brimsley are just standing at attention outside. And Reynolds is like, do you want to go? It's chilly. Do you want to go inside? And then they have very passionate sex. It's a fun storyline to to include in here where like the two people who have like the access to the most powerful people in this country and they're like also hooking up and they know all the secrets between them where they could easily have been like just separation of king and queen. They know all. I mean, they're really I think of them as assistants to the stars. You know, they see to everything. And if I by the way, if I were in this position if I wanted anything, like, for me, I'd say, like, the queen wants this, or the king wants this. I mean, this. I think of Veep, where it's like, it could easily be, like, the guy who works for the president's office, he's like, so the president wants this and this, and they're like, get out of here. <laughs> Jonah, that's yes. great. So they have this deni- dynamic where they kind of get in this fight, and, and he shoes her out. He sends her away, which is not what she was looking forward to, obviously, but... The next day, he just shows up randomly for dinner, and he promises to make Charlotte hate him less. He's like, I know you have no reason to like me. I know you have, like, no reason to forgive me, but maybe if we could just have dinner together, you could just hate me a little bit less. And he 
he does it. He takes her to his observatory and we have like the only acceptable romantic interaction at an observatory where she's looking through the telescope and she's like, Oh, what a beautiful view. And he's like, I agree. You know, like, it's (laughs) like, we have to have that. It's interesting because we've seen George do this before with the moment where she was about to try to climb the wall and leave. And he put on this very like charming front and almost role of like, this is who she's expecting me to be. So this is who I'm going to be for her in this moment. So it almost feels like he is a little bit playing the part of the loving husband for now. He's so good at it though. (laughs) I mean, he's so charming. Like he's not Prince Charming. He's King Charming. (laughs) It works. And she says, will you come home to Buckingham house? And like, he does it. They move all the stuff into Buckingham house and they finally have their proper wedding night. Now we're going to go into this in the next phase of the episode. But before all this, Queen Charlotte asks Lady Danbury over, and Lady Danbury puts two and two together, finds out the queen did not consummate her marriage with the king, and so she gives her very detailed step-by-step instructions as to what to expect on the wedding night, because poor Agatha Danbury has never had like a romantic, satisfying sexual encounter, because she's only been married to this like old man <laughs> who is kind of selfish. Charlotte you know, is sort of prepared to not enjoy herself. But when she and George finally are alone together, I mean, he's once again, just like, so it's a very romantic scene. You are breathtaking. It is pretty, but it has a thousand tiny buttons. I'm suddenly concerned that my maids made the wrong choice. I'm very good with buttons. They finally have their proper wedding night and Even Brimsley and Reynolds have a kind of wedding night. Like, while they hear the king and queen doing their thing, they go off into Brimsley's rooms and do their thing. And it's it's all looking up. It feels like Charlotte is feeling really great about where this is going now. She's like, great. I was able to voice my feelings. He responded to those feelings. We're finally living together and everything's going great. Uh, Like, I'm so happy she wakes up and he's not there in the bed. She goes and tries to find him. And then she overhears like a pretty devastating conversation or argument really between George and the Dowager Princess, where he's like, I've done my obligation. I like bet her, you know, like, what more do you want from me? That really is a crushing moment for Charlotte because she's like, oh, I am just a prop really in this whole game that they're all playing because she is just supposed to produce an heir and that is really her sole role. And she's like, oh, I thought I was more than that, but based on like our conversation, at least last night, but clearly that is still all I am. So not great, not a good feeling. So she is back to hating George, (laughs) rightfully so. (laughs) Well, it's so brilliant because this is only episode two and what kind of uh, up and down relationship would this be if they were meant to be together, already married and already loved each other? I mean, there's still a lot of fight that these two have in each other, like for each other, because something that like we did talk about this, but something that we should just really reiterate is that Charlotte is alone. She (laughs) really spends a lot of time just wandering the halls. You know, and throughout all this, George is nowhere to be found. If this were a different genre of romance, there is a 100% chance that George would be a werewolf. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it's clearly like he's hiding something, you know? It's like, 
Charlotte senses it. She got that feeling when she kept asking people, like, what's his deal? What's his deal? And no one wanted to respond. They were like, yes, he is the King of England. Yes, he is. His name is George. And so they only are able to respond in facts and not give the truth. So she hasn't given up yet on figuring out what's really going on here. Love that she finally, they finally had their romantic night together, but the fight for their marriage to work is really not over. Let's take a moment to talk about the historical context of the royal wedding night. The Dowager Princess says, like, back in my day, we had to have seven people watching my husband and I, you know, do it for the first time. Throughout the centuries, pretty much every European country had some kind of royal wedding night ceremony. There's a historian named Lucy Worsley who says, the royal bedroom used to be a very public place. It was only with Queen Victoria that the bedroom doors really swung closed. And that was partly due to her character. She really didn't like the human body very much, partly to do with the chastity and the modesty of the age. But until the Victorian era period, there were always people (laughs) trooping through the royal bedroom. For example, like Catherine of Aragon, who was Henry VIII's first wife, Worsley says that until the very last minute, the room would have had been full of people cheering them on, and in the morning they would have inspected the sheets by the ladies of the bedchamber to see if the marriage had been consummated or not. According to another historian, Lisa Hilton, in real life, George and Charlotte consummated their marriage, no fuss, no drama, but it's very interesting to know that I mean, they probably would have been watched in real life, and it wasn't until their granddaughter, Queen Victoria, came to power that she was like, no more watching us do it. Just trust me. Just trust me. And that's the history of Royal Wedding Nights. We wanted to take a quick break to shout out a brand and their products that we really enjoy and think you will too. Well Read Company makes products perfect for all book lovers. Their selection of bookworm gifts and literary accessories will have people complimenting you every time you wear it. They have handbags that look like books, including titles like Emma, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and other literary classics. You can get 10% off your purchase by using our exclusive code with no spaces, the Pemberley Podcast. They ship worldwide, including USA, Canada, and Europe. Visit their website at wellreadcompany.com to browse their products and follow them across social media at wellreadco. Now back to the show. So another big part of this episode, and really something that's ongoing throughout, is the Great Experiment, which is technically something that the Dowager Princess has been running-ish. We only really saw it at the wedding when... They invited more people to the wedding day of and suddenly gave Lord and Lady Danbury their titles upon introdu- and upon meeting them. So now Lady Danbury and Lord Danbury are in this position of like, great, we have these titles. Now what? And what does it really mean to be integrated into the Tawn? Part of what we talked about earlier was Lady Danbury was invited to have tea with the Queen, which was... Very odd, considering it's during their honeymoon. She's not supposed to have visitors, so it's done in a very discreet manner. And Lord Danbury is also very much like, why are you the one who's getting invited when I should be the one being invited? He is more linked to the throne and and 
maybe just ego. He is the head of the household, so he just wants to be the one with all the attention. But even still, Lady Danbury has an in into the palace. So she's going to make the most of it, of course. So yes, we talked about the tea where they talk, but also in a way, she's the unofficial representative of the Great Experiment of voicing everyone's opinions of like, what does this mean? Especially Lord Danbury, he's like, so can you just talk to her and like ask her for more things or like, what what's our deal? But Charlotte is not really fully in that role yet of like being the queen of understanding like her own power too and what that means. She has no one to guide her into that role of like, what does it mean to be I don't know, lady of your household or or queen of a country. So I think there's a lot that she's also learning along the way. And Lady Danbury is trying to also help guide her in the way that she can, but it's also not her place to do so. So it's a very tricky position for her to be in. But even still, Princess Augusta finds out about this tea and she's like, great, Lady Danbury, come have tea with me. So the Dowager Princess since she's not able to get answers from George and she's not talking to Charlotte in that way at all, she's like, wait, what if you, Lady Danbury, could help me with information that I need? That would be great. But of course, Lady Danbury is very smart and she's not just going to use this as a one-way street. She's like, great, I can help you if you can also help me. So she is really trying to wield her new noble power in a way where she's like, How do you get the information you need and how do I also get what I need? It's really something to see because she's essentially helping the new Queen of England find her power while simultaneously finding her own. It's really impressive the way that she, you know, she's invited to tea. But first, she's invited to tea by the Queen. Then a few days later, she's invited to tea with the Dowager Princess. And essentially, she wants her to be her spy on Charlotte. Yeah. And she's just so brilliant and tactful the way she kind of figures out in the moment that, I mean, she really is good at like leveraging her power here and saying, I'm Lady Danbury, but, you know, unless it comes with the land and the money and the status that comes with a title, then like a title is just a title. Like you've just given me this empty thing to put in front of my name. And what I don't want is for my husband to be barred from whites, to be barred from the hunting parties. We should be invited to these things. And what's so brilliant about this is she kind of like she does it without selling out Charlotte. I mean, I think yeah. there's an avenue where we could be really mad at Lady Danbury for totally selling out <laughs> and spilling all the Queen's secrets and thoughts. And I feel like she does a great job of leveraging the power that she was technically given and asking for it but also protecting Charlotte's private life. So, I mean, they do end up getting an estate. And it's funny because Lord Danbury is like, see, they finally recognize who I am and my status and they see me for who I am. And she's just like, yes, yes, dear. Like, of course they did. And all in good time. She doesn't even take credit for the work that she's been doing of talking to the queen, talking to the princess, Lady Danbury is just like doing so much for Laura Danbury when she really doesn't need to be. I mean, it helps her status, of course. Yes, you're now in a bigger, nicer estate. But he's the one who kind of gets all the credit for that. Knowing what Lady Danbury is like in the present as like a a powerful matriarch figure. Mm -hmm. She doesn't bow to anyone. She doesn't take crap from anyone. And it's just so... It like flooring to me to see her as a young woman 
Like, because she's not actually subservient. She just kind of acts, but she like acts the part. And I just feel like the way we understand her in present day Bridgerton, she is just such her own person and people respect her for it. And it's crazy that there was this time when no one knew her or respected her for anything. And she really like had to start clawing her way up. And she did so much for her husband who she doesn't even like. No. (laughs) She doesn't even like this guy. He's like kind of this bumbling old man who just kind of is very loud and very brash. And she comforts him and she tells him what he wants to hear. And she seems so genuine about it. She, She plays the part of wife so well because I think she's like really been raised for this. She is young. She got married young. And so... This is kind of the role that she's been preparing for all her life. And she's doing it. I mean, she's doing what she was trained to do. It's like very rehearsed. That's what it feels like. Is She's just going about it in a very rehearsed manner. I agree. She's a very interesting character to see grow as well. Like she and Charlotte are going to be growing together. And I'm eager to see how her story unfolds. So we're going to dive into another history fact. The history of Queen Charlotte and the Pomeranian. George sends Charlotte a gift to let her know that she is not alone of a Pomeranian puppy. And Charlotte's hilarious. She's like, it's a deformed bunny. Like she's from Germany where they've got giant dogs. Actually, when she came over from Germany to England in 1767, she came with two Pomeranians, Phoebe and Mercury. I think we've all met a Pomeranian at some point (laughs) in our lives. They're teeny little floofs that can like fit in your two hands. They're very tiny. But at this time, the breed was much larger. They were between 30 and 50 pounds, so they were pretty solid mid-sized dogs by then. And it wasn't until Charlotte's granddaughter, Queen Victoria, who was also very fond of the breed, she had a miniature Pomeranian named Marco. He was only 12 pounds. He was kind of reddish. And she exhibited him in 1891. As with everything the Queen, especially Queen Victoria did, became massively popular. So the entire breed, because this one miniature Pomeranian Pomeranian became like so popular, the entire breed physically shrank by 50% over the years. The Pomeranian is now one of the most popular dog breeds in the United States. It's like number 22 as of 2017, which is, you know, like top 50. That's pretty good. (laughs) I I would love to know what these bigger Pomeranians looked like because now they're just so teeny tiny. Little bigger floofs, I guess. (laughs) Little bigger floofs, little mid-sized floofs. So that's uh, a little bit about the history of the British royal family and Pomeranians. In our third and final event, we are in Bridgerton's present day where the queen is an older woman and she is currently dealing with the succession crisis amongst her 15 children, only one of whom actually produced a royal heir and they lost her. (laughs) So sad. It's so sad. Sorrows, sorrows. Sorrows, sorrows, prayers. So she's just so flabbergasted. That, like, she and her her husband were able to produce 15 of these kids, and not one of them is able to produce run beyond the princess, the late Princess Charlotte. I mean, it makes sense why then Lady Whistledown would be a little bit criticizing her of, like, she spends so much time worried about who's the diamond of the season and what matches are happening in, in the ton. 
And yet in her own household, she has not been able to pull that together for her kids. I mean, and I'm sure there could be a whole other different kind of spinoff series about what it was like having Charlotte as a mother. Definitely, as we see her criticize her children, it seems like this isn't the first time. Perhaps we have some self-esteem issues in the family. (laughs) I wonder how much King George was even present in their lives because of how much he is hidden away from the public, how much is he hidden away from his own children? How much do they know about his condition? That's so true. We don't know. Like, we don't really... Yeah, it's not. It's honestly not something we learn in the whole series, but I feel like that would be interesting to to understand the context of, like... I, you know, I think they do know, because it's like, that's why maybe they're all still there for her. No, but the queen... I mean, there's so many illegitimate children, so it's yes. not like her kids cannot physically reproduce, I think mostly her sons, but she uh, hosts this consultation tea with (laughs) Lady Danbury and Violet Bridgerton. And the queen is like, Violet Bridgerton, you have had two weddings in two years amongst your children. What is your secret? How do you, how do they do it? How do you do it? Violet's just such a romantic. I mean, I don't think she realizes, because she doesn't like care about like the name or the succession line or anything like that. And also a lot of her kids are still pretty young. But she's like, love, the answer is love. They just need to marry someone that they fall in love with. And the queen is like, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) My problem is not love. My sons fall in love with actresses and married women and uh, many ineligible women who cannot produce a royal baby. I want royal marriages. What do I do? They just kind of share their own experiences with love and marriage. And it's... It's just so interesting because, like, of the three of them, Lady Danbury is the only one who's never had love in her marriage. I think she's been in love, but she's yeah. not in her marriage. Yeah. And the queen, I think that's why she's so flabbergasted. She was like, it was just so easy. Just, like, fight for your spouse, fight for your marriage. And, like, that's all. Like, she just doesn't not know how to be strong like that. And she doesn't know how to pass that on. And then Violet's like, I just kind of like skipped into a pile of flower petals and I was in love. And yeah, it happened for me too. I don't even know how to like pass on advice like that. I mean, she is so well known in in her own family of like insisting her children marry for love. Granted, like they have this great example of her marriage with Edmund of like this great big love story. And so she's like, see guys, it was easy for me. You should do it too. And that's met with much resistance from her kids. Cause they're like, yeah, that was you. Like, that's not like everyone's story. I think like what you had was rare. And I think the queen feels the same way. She's like, you can't bank on love. You can't guarantee that. Yeah. So I need this air yesterday. And so what's going to get me that air? You know, it's really sad because for the Bridgerton kids and the royal kids, I think it, it is a different kind of pressure to see your parents so in love with each other and so crazy about each other. And just, you know, once you get older and you start dating, you realize that, like, that kind of connection is very rare. I think especially in a time where that was never guaranteed. Love was never, like, that's what you're marrying for. It is very much just, like, this is a marriage of convenience or this is, like, an arranged marriage or this benefits our estate, this benefits our families. It's more of, like, outwardly, who does this marriage benefit not necessarily the two people getting married. It is like everyone around them. And what Violet is proposing is that, no, it is about the two of them. And then that will positively impact everyone around them. Not out in, it is in out. Yeah, (laughs) the way I see it. 
Poor Lady Danbury. Yes. Poor Charlotte. <laughs> Poor Violet. I know. All these women, like, have had happy relationships, and they are no longer in those happy relationships, and it's all kind of riding on their kids, and it's it's hard to pass down, you know, that kind of luck and that kind of fight that you give. So I'm hoping that all of their lives in the present day progress in a great way. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Tune in next week as we discuss Queen Charlotte Episode 3. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and support us on Patreon at The Pemberley. Email us with any questions or comments at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. If you like our podcast, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts so we can reach more Jane Austen fans. Thank you.